Uh, pastor and a priest walk into a movie theater. Hi, I'm movie geek father Andrew Miller of the Celtic Rite Old Catholic Church. And I'm cinema lover Reverend Michelle Byerly of the United Methodist Church. And this is a pastor and a priest walk into a movie theater, a podcast about faith, life, and the silver screen. And today we're going to be discussing the 1983 post-apocalyptic film, The Day After. So for those of you who have not seen this, I am going to give you a very stern (laughs) warning. Uh, I think they even said this when they were initially airing it, do not watch it alone the first time. And I just have to say, Andrew, what did you have me watch? (laughs) But um, in all seriousness, it does deal with some very um, deep topics. And so we want to give you that conversation. But also the key of this is to look at what it would have been like had there been a nuclear war started and not so much the day of the events, but in the timeline afterwards and the effect on the the people and the planet. So with that, we will dig into the conversation. Yeah, there, there are at least, I think, two movies here. Um, the, the first one, of course, was the, the Americana, often even overly pretty and nice and sentimental view of Midwestern life in the first uh, hour of the day after. And then, of course, that 10, 20-minute scene while the attack is in progress. Um, And then, of course, the horrific aftermath, which takes up the second hour. That thing that really strikes me is just how different the second hour is from the first hour of the movie. Well, and that was, as someone watching it for the very first time, I picked up on that pretty quickly. It was very much this kind of idyllic slice of life. Um, A lot of movies don't get made about the Great Plains, (laughs) where we're from. And so for it to be set in places like Lawrence, Kansas, or Kansas City, Missouri, was kind of a way of saying, and and, um, as I was reading some of the background on this, they had said that it was intentionally set in one of the few places that was theorized would not be affected by a nuclear impact on either of the coasts. Now, in the course of the movie, we understand that because of the presence of some of the missile silos, they could have potentially been a target. But there's some intentionality about setting this in kind of a very ordinary bread and butter, meat and potatoes kind of life. Indeed, one of the criticisms about the movie was was of the first part of the film, uh, that it was, if anything, a little too kitschy. And of course, my response is that's probably intentional on the part of Nicholas Meyer, the director, that he wanted it to seem very kitschy so that contrast between the first half and the second half would be just that much more noticeable. And I, and from a filmmaking perspective, I saw it as these are lives that Mm -hmm. matter. And it was really trying to get you invested in the lives and the world first, and then pull that rug out from under you. The specific details of the plot, I think, are less important. I mean, it follows primarily Jason Rabards' character, who's who's a doctor at Memorial General Hospital in Kansas City, which is a fictitious um, hospital. Uh, he also teaches at KU Med, where both of us did our uh, um, chaplaincy. Uh, chaplaincy, and it's it, you know I'm from Kansas City. I, I live in the Kansas City area, so all of these places that they're talking about, I, I've seen. But it follows uh, Doctor um, Oaks, I think. Doctor Oaks, thank you. Uh, and there, he's he's really the main character. His uh, uh, his kind of sidekick resident. 
um, as well as a number of other interlocking folks. There's a science professor at KU played by a young John Lithgow. There's a pre-med student played by Stephen Gutenberg. Um, and uh, you know, so there's a, a farm family and that has a central role, Dahlbergs, I think, who uh, daughter gets is getting married. Well, the wedding is, is in a few days. Of course, the wedding won't happen because of the war, but her daughter is getting married in a few days and that she and her fiance and, and, and their family struggles and that sort of thing. So let's, um, I'd like to go to the attack itself because okay. we certainly get kind of some foreshadowing. You know, we start hearing the news reports of maybe some talks going on, some movement in West Germany with NATO as they were getting closer to some of the tensions. And then then we see the actual process of a nuclear blast. And I thought one of the things I noticed about the movie in the second time that I watched it that I kind of got in the first one, but not so much was it there was really an element of education where like and 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 I, I I struggle with this because it is so hard to have authentic dialogue to say you know here is what's going on here is what would happen um, you know like when they're like okay what's an EMP or what's you know and 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 so there's kind of some dialogue that's like well what is this and you know that it's really for the audience mm-hmm. and their and their understanding Andrew you've studied this process a little bit more but for me, just watching it of the, not even just the the explosion itself, but you start with the fact that you have 30 minutes that you see, you know that they've launched. If you are functioning under a policy of launch on warning, you launch, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about. We'll get into the ethics of all of that later. But, you know, so you have, I, I thought about what it would be like in that 30 minutes. And we see a little bit of that. We see this, like some people are out watching things, some, the scene with the farm wife, you, you pointed that out to me and that was just her lament. (laughs) Right. It it really reminds me of uh, Edward Munch's uh, painting, The Scream. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I'm talking about, so first off, uh, I think that the 20 minutes of the film where the attack is really in progress or where uh, it starts, the the tension starts to build as we we, we listen to to FEMA warnings uh, talking about a possible attack. They say there's no immediate danger, but we're, we're, we're looking at it. We get news reports that, okay, the Soviet premier and, uh, and the president are in talks. They're trying to resolve the issue. And at the same time, we see Air Force uh, officers running out to their planes. Uh, we see uh, Air, Air Force and si- silos beginning the, the, the launch process. Uh, the general on the, the SAC airborne command post. And so the, the tension is building. We know the attack is in progress and we see on the ground, the panic beginning to build. I think that's actually the best part of the film, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's, that's the most well-made part. Um, I I, the part culminates in a scene where farmer Dahlberg is going is trying to get his family down into his cellar and his wife is still making beds and uh, getting ready for her daughter's wedding and when he comes in and, and tries to get her to go downstairs she resists and he has to drag her kicking and screaming literally kicking and screaming down into the cellar and as she's being dragged she lets out this just guttural scream 
And it's it, it's a really symbolic moment in the film. I, I think it's probably the most poignant moment in the film, this, this deep sense of wanting to deny the reality of the ultimate tragedy. So yeah. Well, and I think, so we each watched a panel discussion mm-hmm. afterwards. And Ali Weisel said, what is imaginable is possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of what this movie does is it takes something that our brains literally cannot comprehend. Mm -hmm. Our brains are not designed to comprehend our own destruction, our own end, that apocalypse, if you will. Mm -hmm. We, We cannot comprehend that. And what this film does is it puts it into, here is what it would look like. The theological reflection. So if I can go into some personal background. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a fear of nuclear war that I've had since I was a child. And speaking of, of movies, it comes from seeing a movie scene, this this time in, in the film Terminator 2, which also should be on our list, in which uh, the city of Los Angeles is nuked in a far better made nuclear explosion scene than the one in the day after. Uh, seeing that scene haunted me as a young child of about eight years old to the point at which I still to this day have trouble watching that scene and to this even though I like the movie and to this day I am terrified I think quite rationally of nuclear war and going to seminary and and becoming a theologian I came to reflect upon the possibility of nuclear war which is very much so still a very real possibility even today in fact perhaps even more so than it was in 1983 even well the theological reflections that I'd like to have on it are um, first off a lot of Christians, especially in the evangelical tradition, reflect on it from the perspective of eschatology. Editor Wesley here, back again to give you definitions for the technical jargon and the original source material for any quotes used by our pastor and priest during their discussion. First up is eschatology, or the doctrine of the last things and is a term used to refer to a religion or a philosophy's beliefs about the end of the world. This often includes the end of human history, and in mainstream Christianity also includes the resurrection of the dead, the last judgment, the messianic era, and the resolution and vindication of God's justice. Fun stuff eschatology or or Christian apocalypticism. So, you know, the nuclear war is something that happens as a prelude to Jesus' second coming. Okay, that may be true, but that allows us, I think, to abstract it away from something that we have to think about in an ethical and a humanistic way. So I want to think about it in those terms, in terms of, of nuclear war is the ultimate tragedy. And how do we as Christians respond to the idea of an ultimate tragedy? And the second point that I'll make is this. The idea of death doesn't so much bother me. I, I assume that this is that other people share this feeling because I, I take comfort in knowing that other people go on. That other people live on. Life goes on, right? The mm-hmm. part of the existential dread of nuclear war is the very real possibility, as Carl Sagan pointed out in the panel discussion we watched afterwards, that life won't go on. And so there really is no hope in a nuclear war. And that is the pull from a theologian whom I admire very much, Jürgen Moltmann. That is, I think, where theology needs to center itself. It needs to be, and indeed, I'm sorry, I'm rambling here, but Jürgen Moltmann's theology is, for those of you who don't know, it's called theology of hope. 
and it really comes out of nuclear terror. His his argument in part was, okay, so we've got a very robust theology of faith from the Protestant Reformation, of love from Catholic ethics, but what is needed in a nuclear world is a theology of hope. Mm-hmm. And indeed, every child born since 1945 is a profound expression of hope, of expectation that we will survive in spite of the very real possibility that we can commit mass suicide like this. I agree. And we definitely see that theme in the movie of kind of in two ways. We see it where one of the the young woman who's about to be married but whose husband or whose fiance is is killed, she she really has a grief around the fact that they never had a child. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, towards the very end of the movie, you have this woman who has, a, she's expecting a child mm-hmm. and, and the doctor and her have this long conversation around, is there anything worth this child coming into the world for? And, and that gets into kind of a bigger theme that I was going to start to talk about, which is for me, there's this question of what is life and life abundant? Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus says, I came that you may have life and life abundant. And, you know, is it worth having to crawl down in the cellars and staying there for at minimum 28 days, if not more, and then risking the radiation sickness, the higher uh, cancers, you know, I mean, there's just all of these things that you see this world and, and there's almost this question of, is this even worth surviving? Yes. You know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That, and, and that is a very good question. And um, unfortunately, I, I, I'm not sure that it's one that our faith in a naive sense gives us an answer to. I mean, obviously, I think a, a lot of us might say, well, of course, you know, as Christians, we would never consider suicide because it's a sin. All right. It's a very, very surface level reflection. At a deeper level, what is it? Are you, what are you surviving for? And, and at the end of the day, there is a scene or there, there's a line. What's important is Dahlberg telling his daughter, what's important is that we're alive and we're together. Mm-hmm. Of course, it doesn't work out so well for Dahlberg because he's murdered on his on his property. And, and there's an interesting dichotomy, I feel, in uh, Dahlberg's reaction to the tragedy versus uh, KU Med's reaction to the tragedy. So Dr. Oakes returns to KU Med after the attack and basically just sets up shop and tries to, to work through the aftermath as best he can, along with the other doctors on staff there. They try to basically run a hospital in the middle of a, of, of a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And in essence, they're trying to be as selfless as they can and help as many people as they can. In fact, there's even a line where Dr. Where Dr. Oakes speaks to one of his colleagues. One of his colleagues is noticing all the people out there. And he's saying, well, what are we going to do? And Oakes says, well, we're going to open the door and we're going to help as many of them as we can. And then there is the Dahlbergs really represent a kind of survivalist ethic that which we do see a lot of uh, prepping is a very very real practice in society and well it doesn't work out too well in fact neither of them really work out too well i mean we don't really see what happens to the hospital at the end of the movie of course it's implied that at the very least uh, oaks dies and oaks's nurse friend played by joe beth uh, williams i think is her name 
she dies off screen. Um, and of course, Dahlberg dies defending his property against people who are sitting around a campfire. And so at, at the end of the day, I, I, that asks a kind of ethical question mm. about what, what's better of, in such a tragedy, the kind of selflessness of the uh, hospital uh, that doesn't really work out or the selfishness of, of prepping, which doesn't really work out. Oh, and it's interesting that you talk about that because what's coming to my mind is our current context Mm -hmm. where we have this pandemic Mm -hmm. where we're being asked to take certain measures and do certain things and some are more amenable to that and some are not so much and and that's kind of become the political kind of thing and but it's also that ethical thing of what do we owe to our neighbor because that's, I mean, as, as I think about this and as I talk about that, that's the root of why we get into war in the first place, mm-hmm. that you get these egos or, or you have these situations where both sides are, I, I want to say um, a lot of it is honestly posturing and fear. You know, I love the movie, The Sum of All Fears, because it says that a lot of times it's not even anger, but it's more underneath it. It's a fear, and I would add a fear of the other. And the more that we dehumanize the other, the easier it becomes to commit these atrocities. And so part of what I was thinking about was what would the Russian version of this movie look like or the Soviet mm. version? You know, what, what would it show? What would it be like? And to be fair, there's, I'm an, I've grown up in the American inculcation, and I've there's this sense of, you know, we politically, there's that level Damn of mistrust, commies. right? Right. But I wonder, the, something that I learned when I was traveling to Israel is a beautiful phrase, and it's people are people and governments are governments. And what that means is, you know, governments are going to posture and they're going to be that way. But when it comes down to it, we're individuals. We all, to quote John Kennedy, we all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And yeah. we are all mortal. Um, mortal. It's interesting. The Soviet Union is is really off camera in the day mm-hmm. after. It, it's, they're not just, I mean, obviously they're there. The, the only time we actually see a Russian is the, the Russian uh, ambassador who has a very, very brief cameo. Well, it's not the real Russian ambassador, but an actor playing the Russian ambassador has a very, very brief cameo in a news uh, bulletin. Uh, and that's it. Beyond that, we you know, obviously it takes place during the Cold War, a Cold War against the Soviet Union, and so therefore the Soviet Union is present, but but they don't talk a lot about the, the Soviets. We get that the from so Reverend Michelle and I watched a panel discussion that broadcast after the the day after it was initially uh, uh, put on air uh, in 1983. It was a Ted Koppel uh, was the leader of the panel, and he uh, hosted a number of basically the creme de la creme of American intellectual life at the time. You had William F. Buckley Jr. You had uh, Henry Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft, uh, uh, Bob McNamara, and of course the wonderful Carl Sagan and the wonderful Elie Wiesel. And a lot of their discussion, I think, got into the nature of our enemy, the nature of the, the Soviet Union. And, and you had this uh, sense of, of you have Carl Sagan, who has friends in the Soviet Union, who's done scientific research with uh, Soviet academics, who has a sense of uh, trust almost of, of the Soviets to at the very least act in their own self-interest. And then you have William F. Buckley, 
who cannot see past his ideological hatred of communism. And as such, for him, nuclear deterrence is acceptable because without it, he honest to God believes that the Soviet Union would attack first. And that's it. And that gets into a debate in the movie itself, mm-hmm. where where a couple of people are like, who who fought first? Who who? And the movie makers intentionally left that ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And in the movie itself, the response to this whole who launched first is, it doesn't really matter. No, we're we're screwed. We're hurting. <laughs> you know, the fact is, the cat's out of the bag. We now have to live with this future we've created. And indeed, we may not live to yeah. see the future that we've created. Yeah. It's interesting, the radiation wouldn't kill us primarily. It, it would be this crop failures, massive crop failures, massive starvation, and more susceptible to disease. Yeah. The concept of nuclear winter was actually a pretty new theory at that point. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right that it, it's not, it's all of these other ripple effects throughout um you know the disease the scarcity of resources and all of those things would would have more of an impact indeed you'd have years uh, and carl sagan discusses this you'd have years of total crop failure basically the higher years where there would be no agriculture now of course the biologically important fact about that is human beings have to eat in order to survive <laughs> so very very few i mean the the logic of that is this very very few human beings would survive if any and okay so you're a christian now and you're living in the rubble does your faith mean anything anymore if it does how do you practice it Mm -hmm. and you know what what do you do well for one you don't stand up in front of everybody and say let's thank god for what happened that we are alive gosh i want to i want to address the pastor Awful theology of that pastor in that service sometimes your best response in crisis and in disaster i struggle with this because i have heard some lay parishioners who don't understand this mm-hmm. sometimes the best response is silence mm-hmm. and it's not that god doesn't care or god is silent on these issues It's that nothing I can say can begin to heal, can begin to comfort, can begin to do anything helpful in that situation other than just to say, you are hurting. I will sit with you. I will cry with you. I will be that fourth friend of Job. The Book of Job as a whole is often used in Christian and Jewish traditions to talk about pastoral care and especially hospice work, where the clergy person counsels and sits with the dying. There is wisdom throughout the book, but the stories of the three friends of Job are especially moving, as they so effectively illustrate what is and isn't helpful when attempting to comfort those in pain. The phrase, the fourth friend of Job, refers to a person striving to fill the role of true comforter. In this passage, we see the three friends finally understanding the value of simple presence. Book of Job, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, 
heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust upon their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. And that, at the end of the day, was what the stranger did. There are signs of hope, I feel, in the movie. The first sign of hope is the stranger who sat with Dr. Oaks after he returned to Kansas City as he was dying. The two of them were essentially dying. The, uh, the man offers him a piece of bread. Oaks collapses basically in tears. It's implied that he's in the remains of what was his home. And this mm -hmm. random stranger gets up, sits by him, and embraces him and the two cry together and that's the end of the movie that to me that's a great hope because that that is mutual suffering and that's very human in the best sense of the term the, the other sign of hope is the the child who is born and the fact that the mother laughs after the child is born yes laughter is so holy mm -hmm. the, the 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 scene that we were referring to with regards to the preacher, the, the, the preacher really, who's reading from the book of Revelation. So this is after the attack. The church, has, the church has no roof. The church has been destroyed. And yet people are sitting in the pews and the preacher is reading from the book of Revelation and interpreting the attack in light as many fundamentalists do in light of the book of revelations that it's it's an apocalyptic event and so all, he only has that language by which to grapple with it and it's a very abstract language that it doesn't acknowledge the pain and what's so odd is is that in the midst of that scene it's clear that he has radiation poisoning the priest the preacher mm -hmm. he 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 has signs all over him he's dying of radiation poisoning and that's also the scene where we find that uh, the daughter of of farmer dahlberg is now dying of radiation poisoning because she's sitting in the church and she starts bleeding. So, yeah. so I want to think about something a little bit, and we call this apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic genre. Mm -hmm. um, Revelation in, in Greek was apocalypsis. Mm -hmm. And really, it means that something is being revealed to us. Mm -hmm. And so in that light what is this movie revealing to us about ourselves? Because I, th that's one of the reasons I love literature and film is that it can hold up that mirror to us and say, Ted Koppel says this, you know, is this what will be, or is this what might be? Mm -hmm. And I love how he says, look out that window. It's all still there. It's all still there. That's also hope. Yes. And I think what it reveals about us is, I think it reveals ourselves in, in this sense, in the sense of what uh, Elie Wiesel, and I find it interesting that our conversation is as much about the panel discussion that we watched as it is about the movie, which I think is a good thing. And mm -hmm. in fact, if you do plan on watching the movie, oh, listener, watch the panel discussion afterwards. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely brilliant. But yeah. Elie Wiesel says in the panel discussion is, is what, and you mentioned this before yourself, uh, Michelle, uh, madness is possible. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he, he lived says, madness. Exactly. And, and he reflects on it. He says, uh, as I was watching the movie, I had a distinct feeling I've seen it before. before. And of course, Elie Wiesel was a Holocaust survivor. And then he said, well, now we've all become Jewish. 
um, because what happened to his people can now happen to all of us. Um, but I think what the movie reveals is humanity in total. Um, it, it reveals what humanity is capable of, the madness that humanity is capable of. Um, it reveals the, the cruelty that humanity is capable of. It also reveals that even in the face of what is the ultimate tragedy, humanity is capable of great hope and, and great love. <laughs> the man who sat with Dr. Oaks, the, the woman who gave birth in the midst of all of this. I wanted to talk really quickly um, about the concept of death as such, because mm -hmm. it seems to me, and I, I reflected on this in our discussion as we were watching the movie, that the, the two passages in scripture that come to my mind um, as I, I think about the idea of nuclear war as a function of my own mortality are the passion narrative of the gospel of Luke and the passion mm -hmm. narrative of the gospel of Mark. Now in the passion narrative of the gospel of Mark, it centers on the suffering of Jesus. Jesus, it's, it's Eli, 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 Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we recognize uh, that this is the son of God from the centurion in the face of ultimate suffering that that's what makes makes jesus god is that he is the one who suffers um but it's it's it, it doesn't hold back it's very real suffering and it's very real pain and it's screaming and it's not dignified and then you have the gospel of luke in which jesus prays for his captors on the cross in which jesus is very calm in the face of his execution his painful execution jesus's last words are into your hands i commend my spirit and so Luke's gospel is that of a good death, whereas Mark's gospel is that of a not so good death. And um, I think you know, this film made me sort of reflect on the different ways of dying, actually. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I felt that um, Oaks and that man at the end, and I keep coming back to that, that is, that's Luke's death, right? They, they, they have a, it's a painful death, but, and, and then it's a tearful death, but it's, it's dignified. And, and it's human and it's today i will be with you in paradise yes exactly that it's on it's honestly oaks becomes the kind of thief that man becomes jesus and who mm -hmm. says you know, you know i'm with you and mm -hmm. and you'll you'll be with me to the end and by the way i'd forgotten that he had given that piece of bread but that's very eucharistic Eucharist. from the greek eucharista meaning thanksgiving Eucharist is the Christian ceremony commemorating the Last Supper of Christ, in which the bread and wine, or grape juice for groups such as the Methodists who don't wish to use alcohol, are consecrated and consumed. In the Roman Catholic tradition, this consecration is known as transubstantiation, and is believed to be the spiritual transformation of the elements into the actual body and blood of Christ. In different traditions, it is also known as Communion, Holy Communion, and the Lord's Supper. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's interesting that, uh, of course, the then there's the cry, and that, that the end scene of, of the movie is just so beautifully symbolic. Is um, there anybody out there? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the mark in death. The, the anybody there anybody at all john lithgow and um 
you you have that sort of hope juxtaposed with with screams there there are two existential screams in the film there's the one at the beginning of the attack when mrs dahlberg screams like refusing to let go of her life and then there's the in the hospital a random patient just gets up and screams so for me another big piece of this and we've kind of alluded to it but i want to give the term to it is theodicy The Odyssey, from the Greek theos, meaning God, and dike, meaning justice, is the exploration of why God permits evil to exist. Some faiths and traditions enter into theodicy with starting conditions, such as the all-powerful or omnipotent, all-knowing or omniscient, and all-good or omnibenevolent nature of God. Others enter with a more fallible and thus evolving nature of the divine. You know, Mm. why does God allow suffering in the world or the problem of evil, so to speak? You know, how is it that we get to this place where we have this brokenness that we can commit these atrocities to one another? And it's it's a question that comes up in so many ways as a pastor, um, because it's a question that everyone asks, you know, if, if creation is so good, if God is so good then why do we live in a world where we can see children being hurt, where we have tons, kilotons of nuclear material that can explode, that we have a world where in in both quick and slow ways, we are dust and to dust we return. That's That really gets to the, the big question that I grapple with impossible to, to, to really do this but okay here I am imagining what it would be like to live in such a world and wondering whether or not my faith means anything at that point whether or not it makes sense to call myself a Christian after a nuclear war because in order to do so I, I'm asserting a theodicy there that's must true. be some kind of a reason um, even that's a bad way to put it yeah Uh, i'm i'm not i don't subscribe to the school of thought that there's a reason for everything and god has a plan for this well i do but if god has a plan it's that god can work good out of horrible evil i do but i i I don't think it's i don't think it's the right way to look at it Mm -hmm. um i mean if i believe that god is is all is omnibenevolent and and omnipotent and omniscient, then at the end of the day, the, the horrible things that happen in history have to be building towards something. But at the end of the day, that's that's a very abstract belief on my part. It doesn't really enter into, for instance, a pastoral situation, going into a patient's room and sitting with them as they're dying. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I wouldn't even dare tell that to, 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 some, to, to a patient. Uh, if I was sitting with them as a chaplain, just would not do it because at the end of the day, it doesn't address their suffering. Right. It, it just, it, it acts as Job's three friends. It just defends God and yeah. God doesn't need us to defend him. Exactly. At, at the end of the day, also, I think God is in the film in the person who cries with Dr. Oaks at the end. And that to me is my theodicy or as close to it as I can get. It's not really a philosophical or a analytical response to the problem of evil, but it is God is the one who sits there and cries with you. Yeah. And is there with you to the end when you die. So 
Yeah, I would agree. So if, uh, if you were writing a sermon on this movie, what would the takeaway be for your congregation? Well, I think um, we've kind of talked about it, but for me, it's the problem of evil. It's the facing of our mortality and, and what that means to be mortal on this earth, how we interact as human beings together or not, <laughs> the cost of, of hatred. And then I, I, I don't know that we've talked about this per se, but Oppenheimer kind of said, had a moment of, I don't know if it's ego, but he's like, I've become a destroyer of worlds. He was quoting from the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita, chapter 11, verse 32. Lord Krishna said, I am terrible time, the destroyer of all beings in all worlds, engaged to destroy all beings in this world. Of those heroic soldiers, presently situated in the opposing army, even without you, none shall be spared. Krishna, yeah. in the Bhagavad Gita, become death, the destroyer of worlds, and he said that after he had yeah. created the atomic bomb. Yeah. So. And I think, um, just kind of as we're, as we're wrapping up on this, I, I, I almost... When thinking about how we would start, I almost said, let's go back to or August 1942 or 45. whenever we 45 when we dropped on Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. That is kind of when the cat got let out of the bag. Yeah, I, I think never go back in. If I was writing a sermon on this, I think I would say something about hope. Because I think that is what is needed in face of the possibility of nuclear war. I mean, I, a lot of my reflections go to, uh, well, what would you do in that set of circumstances? And that's a worthwhile reflection. But at the end of the day, we're not in those circumstances, thankfully. And the question is, in light of that possibility, what do we do now? In light of a possibility that is still very real, very prescient. And I want to talk about a, a, two things with that, actually. So you reminded me of this. Our doomsday clock from the Atomic Council is the, actually closer yes to midnight now bulletin of atomic scientists yeah yes. the, the bulletin of atomic scientists has us closer to midnight now mm -hmm. than we were when this movie came out yes and so the bulletin of atomic scientists has put out a clock face on their uh, their Thank yearly you. periodical yeah. which they refer to as the doomsday clock and it's a measure in their minds and these folks are as close to being experts on the matter as you can get it's a measure in their mind of how close the world is to um, nuclear war specifically but they do now include in a more general sense things like cataclysmic climate change and, and right. um, you know, social breakdown, that sort of thing. So at the time, the day after was made in 1983, the clock was just about to be moved to three minutes to midnight. I think it was four minutes at the time of making the movie. Three minutes to midnight was the second closest that, during the Cold War that we got to World War III. The first closest was in 1953 when the clock was two minutes to midnight. And then, of course, during the 60s and 70s, it kind of got a little bit earlier in the in the evening. I think it got as much as eight or nine minutes to midnight. And then during the 80s, when um, uh, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and the detente policy that was that K Henry Kissinger actually uh, had had helped build with sort of a, a 
warming of relations between the Soviet Union and the United States began to fade and uh, the clock began to go a little bit closer to midnight. Well, now we are 100 seconds to midnight, which is as close as we've ever been. And I think there are a lot of reasons for this. One of the main reasons in terms of the possibility of general nuclear war between Russia and the United States, which is still, again, a very real possibility, is that the Soviet Union and the United States were very good at talking to each other. They were very, very good at, there's a crisis, you, you get the Soviet premier on the line and you talk. And there was a kind of trust built up between the Soviet Union and the United States that neither of them wanted to be the first to use nuclear weapons. And yet now, Russia is a lot less stable and there is a lot less uh, communication between Russia and the United States. And the experts, if you want to call them that, who waged the Cold War on both sides are mostly out of public life. And so we're having to start over from scratch. Um, And if I remember correctly, wasn't there some consulting that's been done over the last few years with Dr. Kissinger about things? Mm -hmm. You know, wasn't there some like, okay, here, we've got this situation going on. Help us out. (laughs) Kissinger has advised just about every administration since since Nixon, but uh, uh, particularly after the Cold War was over, he has advised uh, Bush, Bush one, Clinton, Bush too, especially in the wake of 9-11, he was very active in, in, in providing counsel to, to George W. Bush and, of course, Obama uh, as uh, Putin invaded the Crimea. And there was a very real chance of uh, conflict between Russia and the United States then. So. Yeah. so, okay, so I wanted to talk about the bulletin. But then the other thing that you and I have talked about is the need for something like this again today yes to wake us up because some of the panelists talked about that that people have been sleepwalking that that we're not aware of some of these issues and what struck me so much about that panel just as another side note sorry in general was it was so strange actually to have these brilliant minds with a moderator sitting down having a civil conversation with one another and and why should that be so strange to us (laughs) well i mean yeah i mean you you would not see that even on public television you have uh the closest thing to it would be the mclaughlin group Mm -hmm. and they yell at each other constantly what's interesting is is uh, i think carl sagan and and uh, william f buckley uh were probably in their inner minds about ready to kill each other and yet they were sitting there just as calmly as and as as congenially as can be discussing the end of the world. I found that, well, there's hope in that right there. Yeah. So the 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 ability to the, the fact that we're speaking about something means that it hasn't happened. Yes. You know. Yeah. So but again, it comes down to, okay, how do we in our day create similar kind of conversations around these topics and and raise that awareness and um i loved the idea of your title of midnight Mm -hmm. you know because i think that's that that ties into the clock and um the thing about midnight is yes it's the end but Mm -hmm. it's also the beginning of a new day yeah and uh what what i said to you as we were watching the movie is is that i thought that this film needs to be remade Mm -hmm. um and and you wouldn't have to change much technology is a little 
better on the domestic front, um, but but you wouldn't have to change much. The, the, this movie needs to be remade. And, and from historical context, the reason why people were sleepwalking in the early 80s was because they were just coming out of a period of detente in, uh, during the Nixon and, well, to a lesser extent, Carter administrations in which the, uh, uh, the Soviet Union had warmed to the United States. Vietnam was over, and there was a sense in which people were less afraid of, of nuclear war. And so people didn't think about it as much. And of course, by then the tension had been building. Well, I think that's sort of where we're at now, that there is a very real possibility. It's not just climate change, it's not just the pandemic. There is a real possibility of nuclear war, nuclear war as such, uh, which I think is far more terrifying than either of those possibilities. And yet- Well, and I think about, about we've heard a lot about more cyber attacks now the physical effects of radiation poisoning and all of that but even still my concern is thinking about is there is there something worse or a form of warfare that would be worse than nuclear war the nuclear war and it's hard to i don't i don't know that there is but it's just kind of one of those like what does what does modern warfare look like what is and we didn't even get into just war theory tonight Mm, well don't think it's possible to have a just war using nuclear weapons. I'll go ahead and say that, and uh, which of course asks some very interesting questions of uh, of a Christian in the White House. I mean, if you're a Christian in the White House, if you're the president of the United States and you're a devout Christian and you have your hand on the button that can launch nuclear weapons, well, if you're a Christian, I would argue that you, you cannot push that button under any circumstances, even if the Soviet birds are coming at us, you cannot do it because there's just no just way to do it. So another um, thought was, and we said we would talk about this, and so I wanted to make sure we picked it up, was this concept of launch on warning or use it or lose it. It isn't just that you launch when you have confirmed that the enemy has launched. It is you launch when you think the enemy has launched, when your computer systems have detected that the enemy has launched. Okay, well, several times in the course of the Cold War, that actually happened. In fact, at least one time after the Cold War uh, on the Russian side, that actually happened. The, the Russians had thought that we had launched. Uh, and if they followed the launch on warning protocol in, well, in even one of those times, well, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Mm-hmm. So, Well, and again, it comes back to that fear-based idea. You have to trust your enemy. At, at some level, you have to trust them. Yeah. That you know, the Soviets are not this stupid. The Americans are not this stupid. They're not launching. Our computer is a glitch. It must be a glitch. And I trust the Soviets enough to say that. That's why William F. Buckley would have gotten us all killed if he was president of the United States. Yeah, I, I could go into our I'm I'm so relieved. You know, it, it's funny. We made a joke about it. The hand on the nuclear button in the mm-hmm. last four years. And, I, and, and yes, I'm getting into my personal political opinions here, but there was a very valid conversation around, do we want the person who has their hand on the button to be to, Donald Trump? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he talked about nuking a hurricane. I, and, and, and having watched this movie now, I'm like, you flipping idiot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, in what world... Do you ever think that's a good idea? There are those who, who theorize that uh, one of the ways to deter your enemy is to uh, uh, convince them that you're insane. Mm-hmm. And 
there are some folks who 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 have claimed that Donald Trump's uh, apparent insanity was in fact intentional. Uh, I'm not sure I believe that, but uh, it, it is one theory of the case. It's one that I think is kind of stupid, but it's one theory of the case. So this has been a very deep conversation, and I think just the way to end is to remember there's hope you know again like i said the fact that we're having this conversation means it hasn't happened the fact is that we've been shown the ghost and tiny tim is still walking around (laughs) you mentioned uh how to when we were having this conversation i mean the, the idea of nuclear war is extremely dark you mentioned bringing people back to baseline bringing mm-hmm. our listeners back to baseline I, I i'd like to try if you don't mind go for um, it from john f kennedy our problems are human made i'm editing his um exclusive gender language so mea culpa our problems are human made therefore they can be solved by human beings mm-hmm. for in the final analysis our most basic common link is that we all share this small planet we all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures, and we are all mortal. Amen to that. So, what's next? Well, next week, we get to spend a little time with the lovely Dolores Van Cartier in Sister Act. And you have not seen this one I'm yet. I'm excited because so. I've, I've not seen Sister Act and I've always wanted to see it because it's a classic and I love the classics. So I'm, I'm excited I get to watch. Uh, and Whoopi Goldberg is just one of my favorite yeah. actors. So Sister Act is a 1992 comedy about a lounge singer who has to go into witness protection and ends up in a convent. And... Yeah all of the chaos that ensues from there so um we we thought that maybe following up with a comedy after such deep topics might not be a bad idea in this case so hopefully we can still be uh uh, deep and uh, maybe talk a little bit about the theology of comedy because i think uh comedy has a definite um theological implications i was to say we are filming this either during or right after purim which ah. is all about theology of comedy. Ah, yes. Well, let's uh, uh, get so drunk that we can't tell the difference between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. So uh, uh. as our Jewish sisters and brothers would. So uh, we're glad you joined us today. Thanks for your support. Uh, it makes this possible. And we'll see you next time when a pastor and a priest walk into a movie theater. See you at the movies. We were edited by and definitions and scripture readings were provided by Wesley Morrison Sloat. And our music was composed and recorded by Gail Gallagher. A pastor and a priest walk into a movie theater is a production of New Faith New Media. If you like what you've heard, please check out NFNM's other podcast, Faith and What Resonates, hosted by Gail Gallagher. If you really like what you've heard here, like the New Faith New Media page on Facebook and all your other favorite social media platforms, and consider becoming a patron of New Faith New Media at www.patreon.com nfnm. Patrons gain access to our private comedy roundtable, in which the host of both podcasts, plus editor Wesley, riff on a variety of subjects and seek to access the divine through laughter.